Welcome to the Glindbourne podcast. I'm Peggy Reynolds, and today I'll be exploring Benjamin Britten's The Rape of Lucretia, which is being performed as part of the 2013 Glindbourne tour. This new production will be directed by Fiona Shaw, and she relishes taking on the challenge. Why would a theatre person who isn't fundamentally a musician dare to walk into this world of great music, the architecture of which holds phenomenal meaning that uh, has for many years almost begged a question about how developed theatre needs to be for opera. But I would say that the greatness about this sort of writing by Britain is that visually and musically the things are meeting. Neither of them exists on their own. So the morality even of the performers, let alone the director and the team who are trying to tie their flags to some post. There's a morality in the making of the opera, daring to go into it. There's a morality in what we all as a group decide. And there's morality in the performers themselves. And the more I go to operas, the more respect I have when I see that a singer himself or herself, has taken responsibility for what they're singing. That it isn't some ludicrous thing invented by a director who doesn't have to appear on the night. But actually that we meet people. And that people are telling us about people and singing about people using people's voices, however brilliantly trained. And I find that one of the most, you know, elevating and uh, exciting facts about the opera. sees the centenary of Britain's birth. The Rape of Lucretia is a very special opera for Glyndebourne, as it was famously premiered there in 1946 with the great mezzo Kathleen Ferrier making her operatic stage debut in the title role. Looking back today, we now know that Ferrier's professional career was to be both beautiful and brief. But in 1945, when this opera was first planned, it was a difficult venture for everyone involved. These were hard enough times as Europe emerged from the privations of war. But the form of the opera was unusual and the music was inventive and original. In a radio programme recorded later in 1948, Ferrier recalled the pleasures and the challenges of Lucretia rehearsals. It was to be at Glyndebourne, that most lovely opera house situated on the Sussex Downs, and in the late spring when I wasn't busy. To be able to stay in one place for six weeks or two months, to be able to unpack and keep things in drawers instead of suitcases, to have regular meals instead of a succession of excruciatingly dull sandwiches. My mind was made up. I would learn that music if it was the last thing I did. In the event, Ferrier not only learnt the music, but she learnt how to become a great singing actress. Britton himself later remembered how the preparations during June 1946 made this clear. I think, he said later, we were all aware that a star was rising among us, although no one could have behaved less like a star than Kathleen did. The Rape of Lucretia is one of Britton's so-called chamber operas, 
And while that form is appropriate to the subject matter, the necessary economies of these post-war years also contributed to the shape and the feel of the opera. Corey Ellison is Glyndebourne's dramaturg. The Rape of Lucretia from 1946 is the third of Britain's operas after Paul Bunyan and Peter Grimes, which is a huge opera, huge grand opera with a huge chorus and orchestra, many, many characters. And The Rape of Lucretia couldn't be more different. It is the first of what Britain himself termed chamber operas, which he began very consciously designing that way because it all has to do with the austerity of wartime in World War II, which, of course, Britain was experiencing on many levels, the rationing of food and and so on. And this was, I suppose, sort of another kind of rationing, the rationing of operatic resources and money creating great operas like Rape of Lucretia, like Albert Herring, which came right after it, a comic chamber opera, and then slightly after that, The Turn of the Screw. Those are probably Britain's three greatest masterpieces in the genre of chamber opera, all of which exemplify an incredible economy of means. They all have very, very small orchestrations. There's really just, you know, 13, 14, 15 players in which he is able to achieve an unbelievable variety of texture and expression. Nicholas Collin is conducting The Rape of Lucretia for Glyndebourne's 2013 tour. And he also feels that the historical moment that saw the creation of Britain's opera helped to dictate its distinctive style. Lucretia was written at an interesting time in 1946. And Britain's relationship with his country and with the war that had just passed was fascinating. I mean, he wrote in the late 30s and early 40s all this fascinating music for film. Some of them were sort of general post office films, which show his take on the culture of the time. He's He was very clued up and uh, logged in, I suppose, to how culture felt. In taking this ancient story, I suppose in a way he wanted to get away from the more contemporary Peter Grimes feel and be able to sort of strip back to the, the basics of of opera, that, that very simple storytelling, and experiment with what music theatre could do. It was it was actually quite a countercultural moment. It was quite a bold thing for that group of artists to do. Uh, we take it sort of in our stride nowadays because it, it is now 60 years old, 70 years old. But it, it, at the time, um, probably did feel quite surprising. Part of what was surprising then, should still be surprising now, is the subject matter of the opera. In the early 1940s, all across Europe, women suffered on both sides as rape was used as a weapon of war. All across Europe, whole cities were bombed, whole populations were ravaged and torn. Britain and his creative team made an opera that spoke to all those experiences. Nicholas Collin. 
I suppose what they would have found particularly interesting about this subject matter is how vivid it is and how much potential there is for nuance around that narrative. It's quite a shocking story in some ways. Perhaps that has been sort of lost over the years because we've had so many more dramatic and shocking operas since. But rape in any narrative situation is particularly distressing. And it's the only event, effectively, in the opera. It's not one of many. It's the only thing that that happens of substance. So everything is drawn up to that fact. And we're, we're waiting suspensefully for it. So I suppose what, what probably drew them to it was the ability to weave that fabric, that musical and libretto fabric, um, around the, this tight subject matter. And, and it fits well with the idea of a chamber opera. It's not a long, convoluted narrative in which 17 different characters have their own subplots and stories. Uh, we have only 12 instrumentalists and eight singers, and within that, there's just this one goal that we all need to reach. The libretto for Britain's The Rape of Lucretia was written by the poet and playwright Ronald Duncan. Like Britain, Duncan was a committed pacifist. He'd faced a conscientious objector tribunal and spent the war working on a cooperative farm in Devon. Duncan worked with a long line of texts for the story of Lucretia, ranging, as Corey Ellison explains, from the antique to much more modern versions. The story of the rape of Lucretia is a very ancient story, and it's a story with a lot of sources, really. The first tellings of it go back to ancient times. We've got accounts in Livy, very notably. But it, it was a real, a really important story in Roman history because the rape of Lucretia is quite often recognized as the event that sparked the revolt that led to the formation of the Roman Republic because of the son of the king Tarquinius having raped this virtuous Roman wife, Lucretia, it sparked a revolt among the Roman people, and it's what got them to get the Etruscans off the throne and form a republic. So this story, as you can imagine, is told again and again throughout art, throughout theater, throughout poetry, and certainly even in music. So we've got Livy, we've got probably the next really distinguished version of it is Shakespeare's version, which is not a play, but a narrative poem. And then in 1931, we have a French playwright and novelist called André Aubet, who writes a version of the story of Lucretia, but it's a very, very different version because this version has an overlay of Christianity. This is a a story that happens before the Christian era, but André Aubé's telling of it suffuses it with a Christian layer. It adds a set of characters who have no position at all, who don't exist, of course, in the original because they're present-day characters. It's a, a male and a female chorus, and these are figures that, are, that come to us from the classical theater of Greece and Rome. And these are modern-day Christians who are observing, who are retelling the story 
ancient story of the Roman Lucretia and her rape by the Etruscan prince Tarquinius. And they're telling it from the standpoint of modern-day Christians. So they're editorializing very, very much, which is a layer that we don't have in the Shakespeare, we don't have in Livy or any of those other earlier versions of the story. And it's very interesting that Britton and his librettist Ronald Duncan chose this 1931 play by Andre Obey as their direct source. So here is a story set in ancient Rome, but mixed with an added Christian symbolism, provided by two modern characters, onlookers, that Britton and Duncan call the male and female chorus. The year is about 500 BCE, before the Christian era, and Rome is ruled by a king of Etruscan origin, Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, Tarquin the Proud. At the beginning of the opera, the city is threatened by marauding Greek armies, and the Roman generals are encamped outside the city walls, preparing for battle, among them Collatinus, the devoted husband of Lucretia, Junius and Tarquinius, the overweening son of the king. Fiona Shaw takes up the story. The Rape of Lucretia is a story that is ostensibly well-known, but in fact people only have the vaguest feeling about it. They know someone got raped and she was Lucretia, and most people know she probably committed suicide. But The Rape of Lucretia fundamentally is the story of two people in the opera, a chorus of two, a man and a woman, who begin to describe Rome in that period, about 500 years before Christ. So they're really telling you a story of long, long, long ago. story they describe that Rome has been taken over by a really horrible man. Then they begin to tell the story where out in the desert the men are going to war. Colatinus, who is a general, Junius, his fellow general, and this sort of upstart Tarquinius, who's the son of the recent dictator. He's also there and they're going to war with Greeks and you get a feeling that they're just going to war because it's what men do. I think that's what we're being told, quite fairy story-like. As Fiona Shaw says, fairy tale like, the men away from home, out in the camp, fall to wondering what their wives are up to. Are they at home, spinning like good Roman matrons, or are they out, looking for spicier entertainment? Maria was unmasked at a Celia was not found at all, Flavius is still searching for her, and Maximus found that his wife Donata had been served by some Sicilian actor. The men have had a bet that the women that they've left behind have been faithful or unfaithful. And they recently tested it by going into Rome and they discovered that all the women were unfaithful to them except for one, which was Colatinus's wife, Lucretia. When they went to Rome, they found that she was working hard at her spinning, just being a virtuous wife, but none of the other wives. And the men are drunk and Junius's wife has been unfaithful, so he's feeling pretty low. And he starts to have a fight with Tarquinius and Tarquinius goads him for the fact that his wife was unfaithful. And a terrible row breaks out, and during this row, finally, Junius says, well, Lucretia may be faithful, but women aren't really. They're just waiting for opportunity. 
And Tarquinius, in a sort of perverse support of, of Lucretia's honour, says, I will go and I will test it. I will prove Lucretia chaste. Oh, says Junius, that you will not do, and goes to bed. So the drunken soldiers go to bed, but Tarquinius gets on his horse and rides to Rome to arrive at Lucretia's door. Lucretia and her two women are surprised. Why is Tarquinius here? His own palace is nearby, and yet he asks for lodging. But the rules of hospitality are clear. They serve him wine. With a courtly gesture, he kisses the hand of his hostess. Everyone retires to bed, calling goodnight across the courtyards. Then, when all is still, in the middle of the night, Tarquinius quietly rises and there's just a drum beat, so it's very exciting. And he walks through the corridor and he walks past the statue of Colossus, who is his so-called friend, his fellow general. And he then walks past the ladies-in-waiting's rooms and he goes down the corridor and into Lucretia's bedroom. And when he opens the door, instead of attacking her, he sings the most beautiful aria about the crucible of light and how beautiful she is. And he begs her gently to wake up. And he sort of woos her awake. And finally she opens her eyes and she is terribly shocked. And he says, I know that you want me, so here I am. And she says, no, no, she refuses him. But she admits that in her dreams, he is a tiger. And he, of course, accepts that, that somewhere she admits that in her subconscious he is the other animal. And so he continues to, to insist that she wants him, and she continues to deny it. And in her denial is that moment of choice. We do not know whether she did somewhere want him. She may have. She certainly thinks he's a thing in her subconscious, so he's not neutral, which is what passion's about. But she refuses him. And in her refusal is her truth, because that is what morality is about. It's about action. She may be attracted to him, but she refuses him, and so he rapes her. We may have different views on this today, or we may not. No, though said many times, though said consistently, is still not counted as no in too many court hearings. But this is art, of course, and fiction, so will and motive can always be complex and ambivalent. However, in this particular score, Britain's own orchestration gives us a clue. At the moment when Tarquinius wakes Lucretia, we hear the sound of the whip, an orchestral instrument rarely used, but here very suggestive and telling. Lucretia! What do you want? You! What you want from me? Me! What you feel? You! 
proudest of my dreams, you have always been the tiger. Give me a glimpse, and in my eyes see the first element, which is your eyes. No! Give me a glimpse, that it be rise to my perceptible, which is your eyes. Then follows the rape interlude, where the music and the orchestration tell us all we need to know. Director Fiona Shaw and then conductor Nicholas Collin explain how Britain's musical schemes go on filling in the terrible gaps in what Lucretia feels but cannot say. You know, there's a marvelous section where Lucretia is telling her maid to go and get gelatinous, and we hear these terrible sexual themes of Tarquinius coming back, you know, echoes of what happened in the night. Um, but she's using the music now. She's using the music, his music. Now, that's quite... Peculiar. It's just awful. She's not in reaction against. She's somehow swallowed it. She's just got him in her. her the worst feeling. She's got the catastrophe in her. So he, he, he really is telling you two stories. The two hairs running all the time. And beauty and ugliness are suddenly being put together. So he, he, he does play that a lot. In Lucretia's last Ariozo moment, as she tells us about, uh, flowers bringing perfection every day. You hear the oboe and bassoon in parallel octaves uh, playing this sinuous line over the top with a harp sort of ostinato figure. And, and that's a device, I mean, Britain uses it from here on in all the time. It, this sort of idea that there's a singer on stage, but equally important is this unspoken sung line in the orchestra. It's as if she sings her set of words with her set of notes, but maybe another thought in her head is is that that sort of subconscious thought is coming out through the orchestral instruments at the same time. But Britain was the most fabulous orchestrator and writer for, for instruments. He just knew so much about each individual instrument's expressivity and their potential for virtuosity that he explored each instrument to their uh, full potential. We don't know exactly what has happened in Lucretia's bedchamber. There is definitely violence. We see Tarquinius lift his sword. We see him put out the light. Then follows the interlude, and that is all music, and that music is all we know. Lucretia is calm, then distraught. She sends for Calatinus. He arrives. She tells him nothing. She tells him everything. He is a good man, and he understands. He tries for a brief moment to make everything right. But Lucretia cannot accept any compromise. Secreting a knife, she stabs herself. 
Junius, once so angered by Lucretius' chastity, so jealous of Calatinus because of his own wife's infidelity, resolves to challenge Tarquinius's violent crime. He will go on to lead a rebellion that will in its turn result in the establishment of the Roman Republic. Fiona Shaw. It is great that women are written out of history, and yet they're often the point of history. They're the moment of history. And also that the political is personal. You know, what happened in that bedroom that night changed the course of history for Rome. That's not insignificant. It does mean that there is a providence in the fall of a sparrow. You know, we do matter. What we do every day matters. Um, Most of it doesn't seem to matter, but it matters how we live our life, whether we tidy our bedrooms, whether we don't. And maybe it's in that way very beautiful that that is the case, that she is significant. Also, that her death produced a huge change, as Christ's death did. In a strange way, we tell the story of Christ, whatever one's religion, as though he may have known its significance or at the moment of his death did not. His famous lines of Yahweh, Yahweh, you know, why hast thou forsaken me to his father, does sound that even at the moment of his death, Christ was more human than he was God and therefore didn't know whether his death had any meaning and it was huge suffering. Well, Lucretia has no such ambitions. She just wants to clear the sin and the only way of clearing it and to keep her husband pure and to keep their love pure is to commit suicide. But she did have much bigger significance in her action than she knew. And maybe that is what's being addressed a little bit too, that um, by doing the right action, it has an effect on the whole spiralling wave and series of waves that ripples go further, further, further out and it affects everything. But it's not quite Lucretia herself that ends the opera. The male and female chorus take up the story. Corey Ellison. At the very ending of Britain's opera and of Obey's play, in, in which the male and female chorus end it by uh, commenting on the, the sad fate of Lucretia, has often been criticized as gratuitous. But if you really look at it, you can say that after the female chorus is understandably very sad, very despondent reaction to the outcome of the story, that the male chorus comes in and very much provides that Christian perspective that everything is is made right in Christ, that even tragedies that we don't understand, if we believe, then there is some sense to them and that this Christian perspective can bring a healing resolution, perhaps, to a story that we might otherwise only see as tragic. The Rape of Lucretia is a tragic opera. It tells a painful story. It was written at a time when the whole world was just beginning to come to terms with the collective results of excessive nationalism, anti-Semitism, cruelty, indifference and a deep failure of compassion and kindness. But that is exactly why this opera is so rewarding. It tells the story of all these tragedies in little, in the life of one woman at one time. Britain makes for this opera a redemptive music that recognises the grand passions, but that also gives life to the ordinary compromises and the all-too-familiar failures of everyday life. Nicholas Collin. It's concise, it's impactful. The narrative is always very clear. A lot of it is beautiful, of course. The only way that he can 
build tension, Britain, is to first present the innocence, the innocence of Lucretia, her radiant beauty, her virginal status. And so, in fact, a lot of the actual music is, is colourful and light and airy or simply beautiful. And at the same time, we have drama, you have the sort of colloquial chat of the Etruscans and the Romans together, which makes it feel dramatic always and purposeful. And within well under two hours, it, it packs a huge punch as a piece. Mm-hmm.